Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host, Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. In today's episode, I talk with legal counsel Corey Sterling, and we get quite in depth on questions including, do you actually need to be certified on each piece of equipment in order to teach on that piece of equipment? Is maintaining your certification a thing? Like they tell you you need to get certain CECs every year to keep your certification, but is that legally true? Are you an employee or a contractor or are you star- Are your staff employees or contractors? And how can you tell even if someone's on a contract they may actually legally be an employee. Uh, Corey goes through all of all of that. Um, is teaching online different to teaching in person from a legal perspective? And legally, is a Pilates instructor considered to be some type of fitness instructor or something else? And finally, we talk about non-compete clauses. Um, what are they and how binding are they? All that coming up on my chat with Corey Sterling. Hey, Corey. Nice to have you on. Hey, Ralph. How's it going, Raf? It's going awesome. Thanks for thanks for thanks for chatting. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Hey, um, could you please give our listeners and viewers just a, a brief sort of history of, you know, how you came to be here and and how it is that you describe what it is that you do these days? I started my I studied law in Australia at Bond Uni where I played Aussie rules football for the bull sharks up the bull shacks up the shackies, uh, which was a, a, a really great experience. And I loved living in Australia and, and I traveled a lot before that. And then I tried to do the normal thing of working, you know, getting a good job, working for a good law from all of that stuff, never fit. And um, yeah. And, and I just wanted to, the idea was to create, be a law, be a lawyer and start a law firm that I would want to work with myself. And, um, and I think that's something that I, I look for in all businesses, what, you know, I, totally based on, on the, the user experience and just like, why can't we recreate it or why can't we do it a different way? So, um, being a sports, not my whole life. Uh, I used to work in the NFL I, I love NHL hockey. I love the Toronto Maple Leafs. So sports has been my life. And I just decided um, that I was going to try to start a legal practice around it. It originally started with yoga um, because I was in love with yoga for three or four years. I started doing yoga when I was in law school because, you know, the environment in law school can be super competitive and intense and everyone's priorities are placed in different uh focused in different areas than they would in any other normal part of society. And so like, I just learned to breathe in law school and the idea came to, um, to, to start working with yoga professionals. And then that sort of just evolved to, you know, working with Pilates studios and working with spin studios and gyms and it's evolved into dance and massage and 
the um yeah and, and it's just it's been a long it's interesting because it feels like i started yesterday but it's really been about five years of of non-stop work and um yeah and and the whole the whole idea is to make law simple for health and, and wellness and fitness professionals because and what i the, the one common theme for all of them is that they've all got a good heart they all want to help people either be healthier physically or mentally and very, very few of them understand the legal repercussions of operating a small business. And it doesn't have to be something hard or complex, but it's something that there does, there is a degree of attention that needs to be given to it. So um, I guess I, I'm, I'm here today to share some information about my experiences working as a, a, you know, a small business lawyer with health and, and wellness and fitness professionals, and maybe sharing some insights about, you know, the industry that I've spent five years working in. And I hope, yeah, and, and I hope some of the information will be applicable and helpful. In your book, you... Um you, you talk about, um, you know, things that actually a lot of topics that we touch on in the podcast, which are around one of the things that struck me is you mention uh, that a lot of, you know, you talk about yogis specifically in the book, but I think it's you know, just about everything you say in the book is equally applicable to Pilates, that there's a, there's a real fear of or an avoidance of confrontation, like of, of com, you know, having hard conversations and and that kind of extends to, clarifying expectations in the form of contracts um and you know the the attitude of like oh no you know the universe will provide you know the, the universe will look after it we don't need to have a, a contract about that sort of thing or, or i don't need to have that hard conversation with that person you know that hard conversation that kind of makes me feel uncomfortable you know at the thought of it and so you know I, a lot of what you write in the book really resonated with me and my experience in the pilates world um, and but I, I, I just kind of want to leave that as a teaser for those listening because I, I've, I've read you know, not a hundred percent of your book. I've probably read about two thirds of it so far. And I think it's freaking awesome. And I, I think if you're listening to this and you are in the Pilates world and you're an instructor or a studio owner or both, you should you would probably benefit from reading this unless you feel a hundred percent confident that your legal, you know this legal side of your career is totally under under wraps. Um, but I want to leave that as a little bit of a teaser because you, you you touch on a lot of really important stuff in the book, like contracts, agreements, and uh, you know liability waivers and things and things like that, um, which are very important. But I wanted to ask you today about some things that are really super specific to Pilates and they've just been really, honestly, you know, bugging the shit out of me for a bunch of years, and I've just been wondering about this stuff. And the first one is. In the Pilates world, now I don't know if it's the same in yoga at all, but in the Pilates world, we've got this kind of, I think it's a cultural thing where we say you have to be certified on each piece of equipment, right? So, you know, in Pilates, there are a bunch of bits of equipment. You've got mat work, you've got reformer, Cadillac, wonder chair, the various barrels, you know, pedipools, different bits of equipment that we use, towers, wall units, whatever. And, and so the way the industry is set up is such that you get certified per piece of equipment. So you might be a certified mat worker instructor, or a certif- but that doesn't mean you can teach reformer, right? So if you, if you can teach an exercise called the 100 on the mat, you're not doesn't mean you're qualified to teach it on the reformer or the Cadillac, which it's essentially the same exercise um, on each piece of equipment. And there's a lot of, you know, I see questions pretty regularly on social media forums about this, like, oh, I'm 
you know, I'm trained on the reformer, but my workplace has a Cadillac and I want to teach the client the 100 on the Cadillac, you know, am I allowed to do that? Am I legally, you know, leaving myself open to litigation if I if overreach my scope of practice in that way? And I'm just always reading this and scratching my head and going like, is that an actual scope of practice thing or is that just a commercial device that the education companies have put out to like make you want to buy more education before you what it like what would happen if i just walked in and i'm not trained on the cadillac and i just start teaching on the cadillac like what's going to happen so i'm i'm excited to answer this question and it's a wonderful question before i do i'm just curious what do you think the answer is uh well you know i'm no i'm no kind of lawyer and but my lay person's kind of just like common sense understanding of that i mean i understand a little bit about the concept of scope of practice and duty of care so i think uh you know my my view is that it's probably you know if if i was up in front of a, a court and they were saying well you know can you justify why you taught someone on the cadillac even though you weren't trained on the cadillac well, if I could show a rationale for doing that and that it was within my competence to do that, it was within within my scope of practice, as in I wasn't, you know, overreaching my remit, you know, like I wasn't diagnosing their condition or, you know, prescribing medications to them or whatever, um, you know, my view is it'd be fine. Okay, cool. I, I like that. And and the the first part of the answer, I'm I mean the first part of the answer is gonna be like a bit more draconian in, in what the actual answer is. And then the second part's a little bit more fun. But the the answer to the question is that all of it depends on who the certifying body is and how and where they are established, right? So when you look at something like uh, a nutritionist or a dietitian, let's say, we're in, and I think this would be ubiquitous across the United States and Canada and Australia. Let's just use those jurisdictions, right? So if you're going to perform certain activities and the, the government has a regulated board that either is federal or is run, run by the state, they're going to have a certification process where they're going to say, okay, anyone who is allowed to do ABC, in order to do that, you have to go through our vetted and certified process to learn these skills and these abilities, if you're going to diagnose, if you're going to treat, if you're going to, you know, um, inject a needle to take blood, whatever it is that there's all these, you know, fine lines, but all of those are because those are government regulated industries that have their own certification processes. And there's a lot of red tape around them. And there's a lot of problems. If you, if you cross those boundaries when you're not supposed to, right. When it comes to something like Pilates and this is the the reality is that there's there's not a certified a government or like a governmental organized run Pilates board that will oversee what what anyone who's practicing Pilates has to do and the way that it has to be done and so as a result of that if you were and I'm I'm that's so the the first part of the answer is that like the, the question always is, are, if you're allowed to do something, the first question is, who is the licensing authority? What is the process that they have in place in order to give a license? Do they restrict what people who do not have a license can do? And is there a piece of legislation around that? Because that is, first and foremost, that's where the issue is going to come up. So, you know, Raf, in your example, where you're like, okay, if I was in front of a judge, this is what I, my response to that comment would be, you would only be in front of a judge if the person that you were performing the services for suffered damages. 
Whereas it is possible that if you're a practitioner and you're doing something out of scope, like diagnosing or treating or whatever it is, it, it may not be the end user or your client who's frustrated that would that would have a, a complaint with you, but it could be a governmental body that is observing your practice, following you on social media. And then in that case, it's not just managing the relationship of you and your client. Mm -hmm. So the first answer is, who is providing the certification? Is there a piece of legislation around it? And if so, what are the boundaries around that? The next part to the answer I would say is that acknowledge, acknowledging that if there's going to be a complaint against you, it's going to be made by one of your clients, right? Even let's say there's a studio down the street and they know that you don't have a Cadillac certification and that you're doing Cadillac and you're doing the, the 100 on, on Cadillacs, right? They, if they're going to lodge a complaint against you, who are they going to lodge that complaint to? Who's going to pursue it? What would the remedies be? What would the damages be? Right? It's like at law, the one thing I always treat it's about like first question is what relationship are we in, and what communication around expectations do we have in that particular relationship? So the thing that you'd have to know is the real risk that you run, unless there's a Pilates. You know, if there's a Pilates governing body that gave you your certification and you signed an agreement, a licensing agreement or a use agreement that being a representative of their brand and using their certification, you're only going to offer services for for what you've been instructed or certified to do outside of that situation where someone could allege breach of contract against you. The only person, the only, and like, those are all of the, almost all of the legal possibilities I've explored of what could happen. It's really just about the client. Mm -hmm. So what mm -hmm. I would say, my, my practical answer, because I'm all about practicing practical law, the practical answer to that question is, what have you represented to your client? Do they understand what they're getting into? And is there any documentation around the representations and warranties that you've made? Mm -hmm. An example of where you'd be at fault or where I could see you running into trouble is you you have a service agreement or a studio membership agreement that you have all of your clients sign. You don't mention anything about your certifications. You tell them, oh, it's cool. I got this. I can do all of these things. I know how to do all of these things. You're not certified for the, cat, the 100 on the Cadillac. Something happens while they're doing that. They get injured. Firstly, you'd still be covered by the waiver of liability. I think it would be very, very difficult for them to be able to penetrate that. But like the only potential they could maybe allege fraudulent, like fraudulent behavior on your behalf or misrepresentation. So un unless it's overseen or governed by a governing body that's, you know, supported by legislation or an official authority, my, my inclina inclination is that a lot of it is, uh, a marketing practice. They want people to enroll and nothing against the industry. I understand why it makes sense. And I think the, the, the pragmatic approach of having people specified, excuse me, specified in all of these industry, like in all these particular exercises makes sense, but like, it's sort of like, Oh, well you did this, but now you have to do this. And then you have to do this. And then you have to do this. Whereas if you're like, Hey, I'm Raf, you know, I've been in the Pilates industry for 20 years. I don't have my Cadillac certification, but you know, um, I've worked with hundreds of people. No one's got injured. Here are my qualifications. This is what I can do. Um, this is what I've studied. If you feel comfortable, this is what I'd like to put you through and let's see where it goes. And, and, you know, please sign this waiver of liability, acknowledging that I've brought all of the, all of the risks to your attention. So that would be my answer to your question. Hmm. So let me see if I can un unpick that. Um, or let me see if I've understood you. So 
uh, there are certain professions that, you know, in various jurisdictions, so whether you're in the US or Australia or Canada or whatever, are regulated by law. So there's, and what that means is there's an actual act of government, you know, there's an act of Congress, an act of parliament, whatever it says, a legal instrument, you know, a bit of legislation that says, you know, if you want to be a, insert profession here, let's say a physiotherapist, right? If you want to be a physiotherapist, or let's say, you used to use the example of a dietitian, right? If you want to be a dietitian in this jurisdiction, well, you've got to, you know, fulfill these requirements. You've got to attend a four-year university degree that meets these criteria. You've got to pass our government board certification exam and you've got to blah, blah, blah. There are these specific things. And then it says that, okay, and then it, the legislation goes on to say that only dietitians who meet these requirements can prescribe, can give specific dietary advice to people, right? And so if, if you're not, if you don't meet these requirements, if you're, say, a personal trainer or whatever, but you're not a dietitian, then you can't give specific dietary advice to your clients. Is Have I understood that correctly? Yes, that that's correct. And th- and that's why in, a, in an agreement, you'd use words like best health practices mm-hmm. instead of coming up with a diet for you. Mm-hmm. There's all these different ways that you'd want to communicate it differently. But I just want like just to zoom out and look at the big picture of what where all of this comes from at law, just so you know the policy behind it. It's all about protecting the public from misrepresentations mm-hmm. because a lot of the times there will be, you know, um, there, there will be people who want to promise quick fix solutions or that they can get something done for you or they have a, a cure for something. And so all of the case law in these areas, it's not like, Oh, this person didn't have a Cadillac certification and was offering services on, on the, the Cadillac, the, the, it would be someone like, Oh, someone had, had a terminal illness and another person came along without any certification and and offered to give them remedies or medicines and promised them that they would get better. That's what like, right? Because law, because yoga and Pilates and, and a lot of the industries that we work in, there isn't a bulk of case law around it, either because there's a propensity to settle and these are the types of people who don't wanna pursue legal action, or it's just such a small area of law that it never really gets to judgments which then are released to the public for for whatever reason the the examples that we see in case law are extreme Mm -hmm. but the then as a lawyer you have to extract the principle and be like okay well what were they really trying to say what are they trying to protect from that right and so that kind of gets to the the principle that you know that the governments are deciding you know which professions to regulate based on what's the risk profile right so if i'm a if i'm an oncologist a cancer doctor right and I prescribe the wrong medication to someone because of I've read it in some fad magazine or whatever. Well, that's that's a you know that can have very serious consequences for the client. Whereas if I'm a Pilates instructor and I teach the hundred wrong, you know, that's not going to have very serious consequences for somebody, uh, you know, medically speaking. And so that that's why there's no uh, regulation of the Pilates industry. Like you know, if I want to call myself an oncologist. I've got to go to university for 12 years and fulfill all those board requirements and whatever. But if I'm going to call myself a Pilates instructor, all I've got to do is paint Pilates instructor on the front of my shop and off I go, right? Correct. And you would, you would just need someone who would sign someone, you'd need someone who would want to work with you as a Pilates instructor. Mm -hmm. You could say to them, Hey, I have zero Pilates certification. You, you be, it's all about representations. It's all about op- communicating openly, openly and honestly. I've practiced Pilates myself for two years. I don't know anything. I've never done a certification, but if you want, I can teach you the things that I've learned. Mm-hmm. And like, 
a consumer has the choice to participate in in that or not. No, no one can restrict that. That's that's a liberty for one person to offer something, another person to accept it. Right. So if I if I have on my just say, all right, let's get like down to a really kind of what I consider to be a realistic example in this scenario. So just say I'm a, an instructor at a studio and I've got my bio on on the website of the studio. Um, and it says, you know, Raphael is qualified in mat work and reformer, you know, from XYZ company. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's publicly available. Um, and then you, you know, you book in a session with me and you sign your liability waiver, right? Um, and then I'm like, oh, hey, Corey, you know, want to come over here and do some stuff on the Cadillac? You know, what's what's the situation there? Have we, have we been transparent enough? Yes, I, I think... I, I don't think you've made a misrepresentation. I think it depends on what content is, is included in the waiver. If the waiver mentions the Cadillac as an activity and you describe what the risks of those activities are and what the outcomes of those risks are, and someone still voluntarily participates, in, in from my perspective, you've told them what they're doing, you've told them what the risks are, and they've accepted those risks in participating. You don't yeah, I think it would be very, very, very difficult for someone to bring forward a, a case. And and just one thing I want to add on this, which is a really practical component for all of this for Pilates professionals is insurance, right? A lot of the times you'll only, an insurance company will ask for a certification or will want to see your certificate or want to make, or want to vet your practice based on what, you know, wherever you received a designation or your experience. So if you don't have insurance, everything is riskier. And in order to get insurance, often you'll need to provide the appropriate credentials that, you know, that an insurance company deems appropriate so that you can offer those services. So that's sort of one way of, of, you know, sort of a a bit of a a safety net towards it. But based on your example, I would not have a problem if a client of mine put a disclaimer on their website saying, Raphael is trained in mat and bar. uh, And then you, and then you do things on the Cadillac. If your waiver specifically mentioned the Cadillac. Hmm. I mean, I think it kind of, to me, it feels like in the, in, the parallel in the say the personal training world would be like okay well if, if I come to your fitness boot camp you know and you're a personal trainer and, and in your personal training course you learned how to do you know dumbbells and machine weights and you learned how to do body weight stuff but they never specifically mentioned say the fitball you know the Swiss ball right and you think huh you know what I think Raph might enjoy doing some exercise on the Swiss ball today and then the Swiss ball bursts and you know it's like that just seems to me like a ridiculous example of of course you can teach on the Swiss ball, you know, it's not rocket surgery. It's Yes. It's, it's, it's all, if it, however legal we want to get, it's about duty of care and it's about standard of care. And if you, and if, if Raphael has two certifications in Pilates, but not three, I, I really, I, I don't, to me, that doesn't seem that you're falling below the standard of care, assuming that everything was done properly. And if there was a mistake, accidents happen. That's just the nature of how everything works. But the more that we go into this, the less concerned I am about it. Hmm. All right. So, you know, well, that's that's good. That that kind of seems to me that that confirms my pre-existing bias <laughs> on this topic. Yeah. And, and it, not to, I don't want to emphasize the point too much, but just remember, Raf, it's all about the communication with the client. Uh-huh. It's all about the you telling the client, hey, this is what I've studied. This is what I do. Are you comfortable if we try this? Mm-hmm. If sign a waiver, if you've been transparent about what you do and what you don't do and they choose to participate, it would be very, very, very difficult for someone to hold you accountable in that in that situation. Okay, cool, yeah. 
So, um, right, so we've touched on uh, this topic, you know, within the, this conversation already, but something that I wanted to sort of just clarify then is, um, you know, like you said, in, in all of those countries that you've mentioned, the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, I think in the UK as well, I'm pretty sure, you know, there is no legal instrument, you know, there is no piece of legislation that specifically re- regulates Pilates, right? So if, if you go to, you know, legislation.gov.au, which is a website in Australia where you can look up all of the bits of law, it's like type in Pilates, not a thing, right? It doesn't come up. Um, uh, there are regu- there are there is legislation covering, like I said before, so dietitians or physiotherapists or chiropractors or, or whatever. Um, so you know, Pilates is kind of invisible to the the legislation like that. So is at law is Pilates considered like just kind of some form of fitness instruction? Like you know, what category do do, do we fall into? I don't have a definitive answer, and I would imagine that it would vary from jurisdiction to jur- jurisdiction. To me, it would be, I think it would be recreational activity probably is where it would fall under, um, or f- physical activity or recreational activity. Right. And so, you know, presumably, I mean, I'm totally unfamiliar with any legislation around that area, but presumably, you know, if that is such a broad category of things, that yeah. any that any you know legislation there would be pretty generic, I would imagine. Yeah, I'll give you an example. So when I when I wrote the yoga law book and I specifically the chapter on waivers of liability, I did a lot of research into case law in a lot of different jurisdictions. So the Supreme Court, the High Court of Australia, the Supreme Court of Canada, um, the High Court in in the UK, um, and uh, and. What I found with there's there was nothing on yoga, mm-hmm. there was there was nothing on Pilates, but there are like the the best that we could, that we get is like someone gets injured on a ski hill while they're skiing, and is the is the resort liable? If so, did the person sign the waiver? Why would the waiver apply? Why did it not apply? Those are the those are the cases that you get, and I think that what what I what I've had to do part of the it's been a challenge and it's been a it's been a blessing, but there isn't, there aren't those precedents in case law around Pilates. And I, and I really don't foresee it happening. I don't see there being a massive Pilates, seminal Pilates legal case that changes the landscape. And, you know, there's seven justices on the sitting on the bench and they go into a whole discourse about Joseph Pilates and the pillars and like, it would be cool, but I don't, I, I don't, I don't think it'll happen. So that being said, what you have to do at law is you have to look, and this is, look, as a lawyer, it's always about, in, in a hypothetical situation, let's say a Pilates case does go to court, and the parties are not going to settle, uh, and there's going to be, um, you know, a, uh, there's going to be a defense, and then there's going to be a prosecutor who's bringing, who's bringing the case, or, you know, a complainant and, and a defendant. Okay, they're going to look at the different case law that exists. And one of them, whoever, whatever, depending on the argument they're going to make, they're going to want to show why Pilates is similar to these other cases that pronounces a particular law around this. The other party is going to say, no, Pilates is different because you do it on a mat and there's no motor involved. Like, and that's when lawyers are really lawyers. I'm like, a pseudo lawyer because I don't get into that depth of level of things, but it, it would all, it would be about, one person trying to make an argument of why Pilates would fit to a particular precedent and one Got trying it. to 
distance itself from that precedent. So it's kind of like the blind men and the elephant where one lawyer is saying, oh, Pilates is really like skiing at a resort um, because we can see blah, blah, blah. And the other lawyer going, oh, no, Pilates is not like skiing at all. It's more like participating in a fitness class at a gym <laughs> and because that suits my argument better, right? Yeah, exactly. So un until that moment comes up where there will be, a, again, a case where, you know, uh, there's there's a judgment that's released to the public where they go in detail about Pilates, which I, I don't see that happening. Until that happens, we'll never know. And in the meantime, it would just be conjecture or, you know, how crafty someone could come up with a legal argument about why it is a recreational activity or why it's not, or why it is a physical activity or why it's not. Right. And I, I know that you were uh, in the context of what you just said, you know, you said, oh, there hasn't been a big legal case about Pilates. You were talking about you know, liability for, you know, um, basically errors and omissions, you know, professional um, indemnity situation but um as you're probably aware there has been a big pilates case related to the use of the term pilates to represent mm -hmm. a business type and that was involving sean gallagher uh et al in about 2001 i believe but that wasn't related to liability or you know which category of thing pilates is it was just about is the word pilates something that you can trademark or copyright basically yeah exactly and and the reason why it I, I have a particular area of focus because relevant to the issues that my clients face. Mm -hmm. So like as an example of something that I don't deal with, which I, I would imagine there probably is some case law somewhere, probably around um, assault or harassment, unfortunately around assault or harassment or consent for touching mm -hmm. related to Pilates or yo like, I, I know that there are cases of things that come out like that, mm -hmm. um, but I don't really focus or pay attention on that because for the most part, those are things that don't relate to my clients. So it's not that it's, you know, it's not sui generis from law in general, but in the specifics of, of running a small business, we, d we don't, we don't have those judgments mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, available ar around the areas, the practice areas that we work in. Right. And that's probably in, in my estimation, because we don't have those judgments, because Pilates is just simply so freaking safe that no, you know, no one breaks their neck doing it. You know, no one dies of cancer because they got the wrong Pilates exercise. So these no, things simply don't go to court. I, I, what I will say is, I have in my years I, there there have been a lot of crazy stories, a lot of unexpected things that happen that you would you would never think would happen, but any anything can happen. Mm -hmm. Um. All right. So. You know, it seems like Pilates is really in a, you know, legally, it's really not in a category or it's in, it's in a nebulous, you know, a broad set of categories potentially. Um, it hasn't really been established at law, you know, which category it falls into because there is no case precedent and there's no legislative instrument, you know, specific to it. So, you know, where does that leave, you know, what where does that leave the the you know, org, you know, organizations that certify people in Pilates. So there are, you know, many organizations that, so if you're, if you want to be again, a dietitian, you get certified by a government authority, right? Um, whereas if you want to be a Pilates instructor, you get probably certified by a private for-profit, you know, company, um, uh, or possibly by the PMA, if you're in the US, which is the Pilates Method Alliance, which is a not-for-profit um, but it's a private organisation. It's basically, a, you know, it's an optional club. I guess it's kind of like the Yoga Alliance or or something like that. Mm -hmm. it, it's 
has no government mandate. It's just a self-appointed kind of industry peak body. So yeah, what is uh, you know? So if I if I'm you know if I want to be a member of the PMA or not, or if I want to maintain my you know stop Pilates certification or or not, like what's what's the kind of legal status of those organisations? If 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 it's a non-profit or if or if it's an organization that is private and that has created itself and then creates its own certification and creates its own review for certification, it's really what you want to look at as an instructor is, you know, what is their reputation? How well is it known? Are they trustworthy? How up-to-date are the materials? All those sorts, those are sort of the sort of things that you need to know. But, and again, I am sorry that it, I feel like that the answers are somewhat dissatisfying just because it, it, there aren't really those answers, but th- like, this is what I can tell you. Practically, you're going to want to make sure that you're insur- you're covered by your insurance uh-huh. and that who, wh- wherever you're, whoever you're working with or whatever you're working with, whatever organization is acceptable and deemed appropriate. But like, I'll just give you an example slightly outside of Pilates. Like I used to be a spin instructor. Uh-huh. And so uh, I wanted to work at a couple of gyms and they were, the gym said, okay, we're only taking instructors who have, Schwinn or this or that type of certification. So then for me, I was like, okay, well, if I want to work here, obviously I have to get this type of certification. And that's sort of what informed me and in, in my decision. Um, and then like, okay, if, if Schwinn, let's run through a scenario where you do, you do a, uh, a certification and they say the certification is only good for two years and then it needs to be renewed every year. Right. If you need to have that certification for your insurance or for your employer, then you better renew that insurance. The legal repercussions, no one's coming to look for you Mm -hmm. if you don't renew your Pilates certification with PMA. But it may affect your ability to retain clients, to keep your insurance or to um, to work at a particular place. But again, there's if, if someone could have none of these and people, you know, let's say they can touch their toes. And I I know Pilates people can do a lot more than just touching their toes, but let's just say someone was like, Hey, I use, and I know because I went, I had my own Pilates journey where my goal was to touch my toes. I'm, I'm six foot three. I didn't touch my toes for 15 years. And I work with Leo, my Pilates instructor, and he changed my life and all the things. And like, I know Leo's Leo's based in Brazil. I don't think Leo has any Pilates certificates. He might, but it was more like he was my friend. He's like, yeah, man, I can help you touch your toes. And he had a reformer and all this equipment. And I was like, cool, like, let's do it. And no liability you know, weather. He no, where <laughs> I, it's, it, it was in a small town in Brazil, and it's it's not my business, so it, it's it's his business. But um, and and nothing happened, which was great. But um, but that's just an example where like you, it, it, this is a private enterprise. Yeah. These are unregulated industries. It's about two people agreeing to something, and and someone could totally say, "Hey, I use Pilates to to touch my toes. If you want to come work with me, I've never been certified. I've never done a training, um, but you know, I've helped five people touch their toes, and I can do the same for you." Like, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah. So, all right. So you touched on this, but I, I just wanted to sort of double click on it. So the PMA is a slightly separate case because they're a not-for-profit organisation. But what about a for-profit organisation? So I'm thinking specifically about Stop Pilates because I'm certified through Stop Pilates, which is headquartered in Ontario, Canada. Um, And so I did certifications with them 
and I've still got the certifications they're in my filing cabinet somewhere. Um, and every year they send me an email that says, dear Raphael, you need to complete, I can't remember the number, but let's say it's 15 hours of Stop Pilates branded continuing education. You know, so I have to go and buy their DVDs or attend to their branded workshops or, you know, whatever it might be in order to accrue those 15 hours in order to, you know, quote, maintain your certification. So, uh-huh. you know, so, uh, but, you know, I don't know, I've probably six or seven years ago, I just stopped doing that because I'm also, I also have other certifications, like I'm an exercise physiologist, I'm certified in different Pilates organisation. And it's like each Pilates organisation insists that you only do their particular brand of <laughs> continuing education. And they, so if I go and do like an, an anatomy course for my, or biomechanics course for my exercise physiology CECs, that's not acceptable to these Pilates organisations. So anyway, I, I decided I didn't want to do triple CECs every year and so I just decided to not not do the stop Pilates ones so um, you know now I don't actually care about my stop Pilates certification anymore whether I can use it or not because I've got plenty of other certifications but I'm just I see a lot of people getting anxious on social media about like oh I haven't done my CECs this year are they going to revoke my certification will I you know not be able to teach my clients you know like what's what's the legality around that the only thing that they could revoke is your ability to make a representation that you are certified in their particular, through their particular method. Mm-hmm. And again, the one thing I would say is when you signed up, like, did you sign a licensing agreement? So licensing agreement would mean they're letting you use a particular name that you make a representation that you're certified by them. But if that certification is not in good standing through their perspective, then they can revoke that license and you'd no longer be able to make a representation to the public that you're certified through that particular organization. Uh-huh. So, all right. And so th- maybe this gets to a fine legal point, um, which I'm hoping you'll be able to help me clarify. Um, when I was, uh, you know, when I, when I was, you know, working within the Stop Pilates multiverse, uh, they had the distinction, and I honestly have no recollection of what I did or didn't sign, you know, when I did my certification. But uh, they had this this distinction that if you were if you had completed the training but hadn't yet completed the certification exam, you could refer to yourself as Stop Pilates trained. Whereas once you completed the certification exam, etc., then you can refer to yourself as Stop Pilates certified. So you know, is this a case where I, you know, so now you know a decade later I'm. Uh, according to them, I guess I'm no longer Stop Pilates certified because I haven't maintained my CECs. But can I still say, oh, I was trained in the Stop Pilates method? Yes. Assuming that everything that you told me is correct, yes. Because once then once you complete the training, you don't need to renew the training, you need to renew the, cer- the certification. A lot of this, like a lot of, and I, yeah, I'll just speak honestly. What I see in all of the industries, not just in Pilates, is that that anxiety that the teacher has, usually that comes from uh, uh, maybe a, a lack of business acumen or experience, and it may just be a company or an organization, not maybe not intentionally exploiting that, but certainly propelling people to, you know, trying to drive people to stay part of their particular method. It's so competitive. It's unregulated to me, just hearing you say it, I'm like, okay, firstly, legally, there is a distinction between trained and certified. We've acknowledged that. So you're good. If you say that you're trained, but like if, if people are scared on social media, they're like, Oh, is my certification going to be revoked? 
Like it might, but there's a lot of other things that you can do and everything's going to be okay. Like don't, don't get intimidated to think that your world's going to end. If you speak to them about it, they're going to tell you how terrible it is. But then if you call another certifying organization and ask them, they're going to be like, no, 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 come with us. You don't need to do that. So it's, 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 a, right. it's murky waters and, and everyone has an, an interest and their own, you know, interest in play. And if you, you know, from experience, if you put on your website or your bio or whatever, you know, I am trained through Stop Pilates versus I am certified by Stop Pilates, 99.999% of the public who read that will make no distinction between those two terms, right? They're, the number is higher, the percentage is higher than that. Right? <laughs> so it's such a, it's a distinction without a difference, really. But it's marketing, man. It's all so much, so much of these industries is marketing. Yeah, 100%. Um, all right. Well, this is good. Um, so, all right. And the, the, another one that I see a lot, and this is something that I that, that I think there's a bit of controversy about this in the industry at the moment, both in the US and Australia that I'm aware of, um, and I, I imagine it's probably the same in the UK and Canada, is this contractor versus employee scenario. So the common practice in, in the industry in the US and Australia I believe is to basically to 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 engage people instructors as contractors. So right, so they they sign a contract that says uh, you know you will provide Pilates services you know for X number of dollars per session or whatever it is, and then the the basically the instructor has to you know provide their own healthcare if they're in the US, they pay their own superannuation, their own you know pay as you go tax, all of that stuff. The onus is on the you know, the, the, the instructor, whereas as an employee, the employer, you know, is responsible for those things. And there's much, there's a lot more protection for the employee around, you know, unfair dismissal and, you know, holiday leave and sick pay and stuff, stuff like that. And so in, in Australia, I've looked into this a fair bit. We've got a, a website on a business.gov.au or fairwork.gov.au, which basically has a little tool on it, which says like, are you an employee or a contractor? And that, you know, ask, take you through all these things. Like, you know, do you have regular shifts? Do you supply your own tools? Do you supply your own uniform? All of this kind of stuff. And at the end, it pops out and goes, you are probably a, you know, employee or contractor or whatever. And basically I think like eh, pretty, pretty close to 100% of Pilates instructors in my view, if they went through that test, they'd pop out as an employee, you know, de facto, you know, but but the the re- fact is that actually most of them I think are in, are not employees. Like technically, they're they're actually engaged as contractors. So yeah, do you have a view on this, and um, how can we start to un- untangle this? It's a complex issue, and there it's even when you start peeling the onion, it even becomes more complex because there are legal repercussions for the classification of contractor or employee that are not just face value of, oh, I'm calling them a contractor, so now they're responsible for this, or I'm calling them an employee, so now I'm responsible for this. That is sort of, that is a a first degree uh, consequence of the, the classification, but in the event of misclassification, the consequences can be extremely grave and, and very dangerous, almost always for the employer and not for the, the worker themselves. So, so, so just sorry, just, of, just to interrupt there, yeah. I'm sorry. So when you say misclassification, you mean like, just say I, you know, I'm a Pilates studio owner and you're an instructor and you come and yeah. work, work at my studio and we sign a contract. So you're, you know, technically you're, you know, on the face value, prima facie, you're a, you're a contractor, right? 
But in all respects, you actually behave as if you're an employee. You know, you do regular shifts. I provide the uniform. You don't provide any tools. You, you know, all of that. You know, you, you have to ask permission if you want to take a holiday, all of that stuff. So is that what you're talking about? So like the, the, the face value? Yes. M- misclassification of a worker when you call someone a contractor, but you treat them as an employee. And just so you know, in, in almost all of the jurisdictions, there's something called the control test. So that's probably what you went through on, on business.gov.au, but it's the question always is how much control does the employer have over the person who's doing the work? And that's why it's things like shifts, you know, um, increased payment for better job performance, hours, ability to subcontract the workout, what the nature of the work is versus what the nature of the the, the work they're doing versus the nature of what the business is. And so in the, it, what the signed agreement state states is a factor in the equation, in the evaluation. It is not a determining factor by any means, because if you could just call someone something and get them to sign a piece of paper that said they were something, but really you were treating them completely differently to that, then anyone in in the world would be able to get away with it. Mm -hmm. So a signed, a signed contractor agreement is a factor to be considered. What was the intention of the parties? But I can tell you that that is, it is significantly, it's weighted significantly less than, than a lot of other factors, right. specifically like invoicing ability to subcontract. Right. Sorry. So, um, sorry. Can I just, the, can I just unpack yeah. that? So like if I, if Please. I, if I uh, engage a plumber to come and fix my sink, right. Exactly. And I ring up yeah, John, if I ring up John's plumbing, Okay. And John answers the phone and I say, Hey John, I want my fix sink fixed. And he's like, okay, yep, yeah, I can be there in an hour. And then in an hour, Steve rocks up to fix my sink. And I'm like, Oh, who are you? And Steve's like, Oh, I work for John. Right. I'm like, okay, fine. You know, it's not John, but Steve's going to fix a sink. So Steve fix a sink. Off he goes. All good. Right. Whereas if I'm a Pilates, so that's a contractor situation. Like right? I'm contracting that plumber to fix my sink. Right. Whereas if you're a Pilates instructor and you work at my studio, right? And one day, you know, you don't show up for your shift, but Mary shows up and I'm like, who the hell are you? And she's, and she's like, oh, I'm Mary. I'm like, well, what are you doing here? And she's like, oh, Corey sent me, you know, to do, to do this class. I'm like, no, this is Corey's class. You you know, I didn't employ you. I want Corey. I paid for Corey. Right. So is that what you're talking about, about the ability to subcontract? Yes. And the, the one thing that you have to know about all of this is that it's always, it's always a balance. So in, 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 and I'm going to talk about the consequence of misclassification in a second, but just so you know that it's, it's always in, you can have a contract, you could have a contractor relationship where someone is not allowed to subcontract or you limit who they can subcontract to. Mm-hmm. For example, you're allowed to subcontract to any of the other teachers on the roster. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be Corey who shows up, but it could be Marianne or, you know, Derek or whoever it's going to be. But not just some um, random person that you found on Craigslist. It, but also it could be, and it probably in, in a true contractor sense, it, it could be. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I think the, the best way to explain the distinction is often to look outside of the industry mm-hmm. to see how it works. So just like the example that I'll often use would be the woman who's the graphic designer for our law firm. Her name is Mallory. We've worked together three years. I've never met her. Don't know. I don't know if she's real. I don't know if she's a robot. Her, her WhatsApp She might be some is- guy in Lithuania, you know, in a basement. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But like, 
But Mallory, I asked her to do, I'm a law firm. The, the, the bulk of my, what I do is offer legal services. She's a graphic designer. She's doing something outside the scope of what it is that the main service of my business is, which is a really important factor. More and more that's becoming a trend, especially in the United States. So what is your business and what are you contracting out for? Right. So, so, so if she was a lawyer that's, yes. and you're a law firm, that's different. It would be different because then the specifics of how much control I have over the way she's doing the services would need to would need to compensate or address like would would need to be that much more obvious so that she would in fact be deemed a contractor, not an employee. Mm-hmm. So she could work whenever she wants. She can work from wherever she wants. Um, because it's law, she probably couldn't be able to contract out. But that's like a specific nuance to law as opposed to to other things. Um, I don't get to tell her how to perform the services. Mm. Um, the, the clients who she works with could be retained for hers. I likely would not be able to include a non-compete provision into the agreement. Um, and yeah, and, and those are, and you know, she has to use her own equipment. I wouldn't provide her with a uniform. She would have to invoice me instead of me paying her automatically. And just like you, you need, let's say there's nine factors. Mm -hmm. If there's one that's really heavily against you, you'd want almost all of the other ones to balance out so that you're showing that in fact you do, you are treating someone like a contractor. So if I'm an, if I'm an instructor at your studio and Mm -hmm. you tell me, you know, which shifts I've got to work and you don't allow me to just send in someone else in my stead. And if I use your reformers and your mats and your fitness balls and, and whatever, and if you tell you've you know you've got some rules around which exercises I can and can't teach in your studio or how we you know how we do things around here, you know, in terms of teaching Pilates, that ten, you know that pretty strongly suggests that I'm an, in fact an employee, right? Yes, and and the the biggest of all of those is how much control do you have over the services. Mm-hmm. So if you're like, hey, in, in every Pilates class that we do, we always start we always start with the magic circle, and then we always end um, with uh, mermaid, right? Wh- whatever it, whatever it is, and you say the this is exactly how the services have to be done. That's an example. That's like that's the strongest indication of an employee. Huh. Whereas opposed to it's like your class, rock up, do whatever it is that you want. It's all good. Right. And you so know, if make you, sure the clients are happy. If you walk past one day and I'm teaching, I'm like, hot, oh, you know, you're like, Phew. you know, everybody's doing headstands up against the wall, you know, whatever. And you're like, oh, I've never seen that in a Pilates class before. That that's that's like an you know, that's an example of uh you know, if I was a contractor, that you would be like, oh, cool, Raph's doing some cool stuff in his class. Whereas if I was more of an employee, you'd be like, hold on, that's not the way we teach Pilates here. Yeah, and you'd also, def- it's a, it's so much of great relationships is having great agreements. So even if you have a contract agreement, you'd say the services should, you know, should be provided as per professional Pilates standards. Mm-hmm. So then if they're doing something absolutely crazy or something totally outside the scope, like let's say as an example, and this is like what being a lawyer is how you have to think, if they're doing an activity that's not in the Pilates certification program or training, right? And you, they have an agreement saying that they're going to offer the services that would be, you know, standard Pilates, a standard Pilates class, and they're doing something outside the scope, you would have grounds to speak to them and say, hey, you know, I saw that you were doing handstands. 
in, in all of the Pilates trainings we've done, handstands are never taught in the future. Please don't do that. That would not be, that would not mean that you're controlling the way the services right. are because it's, it's, it's a reasonable request. You're not being unreasonable. You're still letting them choose the sequencing and how many repetitions and what they do and what the breath count is and any of any of that related stuff. But the moment that you tell someone how they have to do something and uh, like, sequence and specifically what needs to be done. Right. Um, it's more of an indication as an employee. And and the trend that I've seen for Pilates studios across the board after the pandemic or in this, wherever we are in this whole saga um, is just uh, that more people are moving to employees because they want to control their services more. Huh. Whereas before yeah. they were, they were more relaxed and they didn't care, but now health and safety is different than it was before. And their clients are looking for a different type of service. So they want to have more control. And, and as such, they, they used to have a big roster of contractors and now they'll have a small roster of employees. Mm -hmm. One thing you touched on there a minute back is non-compete agreements. So you said basically uh, from memory that if, if I'm a contractor at your studio, then you probably can't hold me to a non-compete agreement by, you know, if I just kind of go away and take some of your clients with me. Can you, can you expand upon that? Yeah, non-competes non are a, a really, really hot issue. I was just interviewed on NPR radio in the United States earlier this week about it because, and, and not to be too much uh, United States centric, but Joe Biden passed an executive order basically trying to prohibit non-competes or saying that they're going to start the process to eliminate non-competes from, from all agreements, whether employee or contractors. Um, the way that you want to think about a contractor is, you know, the plumber, Steve, who's coming to fix the sink. And is it right for you to say, Hey, Steve, if you're coming to fix my sink, you're actually not allowed to fix anyone else's sink. Right. That's, <laughs> that seems pretty it ridiculous. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But it's so it's so common in the industry that people try are very protective. They're a little bit fear based and they think that, oh, if I bring on this instructor and they're great, then they're going to take all of my clients with them. So just to unpack non-competes, the question is always going to be, is the public interest being served? So the competing balances here are the business owner that is opening up their business and their books and their clients to a worker and the risk that they run of losing all of those because they bring someone on who may steal them versus a person's ability to make a living and offer services in the profession for which they operate. Any non-compete provision will have to have three elements. One is the duration, so how long you're trying to prevent someone from competing against you, geographic scope, over what area are you trying to restrict them from doing this, and what the specific services are. So what are you specifically trying to specific, uh, what are you specifically trying to prohibit them from doing? All of the issues that will come up around a non-compete would be the employer saying that it's reasonable and fighting to enforce it, and the staff member challenging and saying that it's unreasonable and that they can't work as a result. So it's there, like many other things, it's very, um, it's, it's gray. It's a very gray area. It, all, it will often be a question of fact and looking at it and saying, okay, well, you know, in, in downtown Sydney, there's, you know, 37 yoga studios and you've tried to put on a non-compete for two years, not to work in 15 kilometers from where the studio is in wellness, wellness and health services. Right? How is this person going to make money? Plus, by the way, this person was working for you six hours a week, earning thirty-five dollars an hour. There's, there's no way a non-compete like that would ever stand up. It, it just wouldn't. It's too and broad. It it's too broad, right? Yeah, too broad and too restrictive, right? Because 
you're in a metropolitan city and, and so now let's go for an example of something that could work. What, and let's just say Cadillac Pilates. Let's say someone has a studio where all that they do is offer Cadillac Pilates or Pilates movements on, on, on a Cadillac. Okay. So if you have someone who works for you, you, you guide them through a specific training, all about Cadillac uh, movements and practices and, and, and you say, okay, you know, you agree that for a period of three months, you will not work in any, you will not offer Pilates services on a Cadillac for, for a, a distance of 10 kilometers from the, from our studio. Mm-hmm. For me, that would be reasonable. I, I think that it's fair enough. It's not too long that the person could still do anything Pilates outside of that specific element of what it is that they're doing. Three months is a fair time. And, um, and 10 kilometers is a reasonable area. Mm-hmm. The, the last thing that I want to say, and, and if I'm happy to answer any questions about non-competes, but coming back to this misclassification issue of contractor and employee, if you have, if you call them contractors, but you treat them like employees, I've seen two things happen. One, I've seen uh, governmental tax bodies on their own initiative, flag a business, do an audit and actually determine that everyone was employees a long time. You get dinged for a tax, you get dinged for interest unpaid on the tax, plus all of the governmental money that you should have owned for employment. Another situation I've seen is teacher has disagreement with studio teacher alleges that they were employee the whole time. And that even though they were called a contractor, they really were an employee. And then teacher goes off and will report that business to the business bureau, to a a governmental tax authority will report them for mispractice, which could lead to an audit as well. When you try to enforce it, trying to enforce a non-compete for an independent contractor is almost an oxymoron. It's it's almost an indication that even it, because remember, it doesn't matter what you call the agreement, it matters how you treat the person. Mm-hmm. So if you have a full-time employee and you're paying them, you know, $70,000 a year and you have an, uh, a non-compete in that, that meets the three criteria that I mentioned, that's something that's reasonable. If you have someone who's working nine hours a week as a contractor and you're, and you want to go and enforce, and I'm working through this right now with a client and you want to go and enforce a non-compete against them as the business owner, I'd be way more concerned about that person. You know, what, what power they hold in being able to report me as a business for misclassification. So that that's why it's such a complex issue and non-competes actually play quite a prevalent role in, in all of that. Right. And I'm actually, now you mentioned that I'm aware of a, a, a Pilates business here in Australia where that exact thing happened, where uh, a government agency, like just of their own accord, just checked up on them and found that, you know, they were employing X number of people as contractors, but where in re- reality they were employees and they made them pay them back wages, back tax, but like for years. And this, this pr- pretty much I would imagine would you know, broke that studio financially. And that was like a, a, a business ending event for them. It, it is. I, and I worked with one client who got a bill from the Canadian Revenue Agency for $350,000. Yeah, in, in like it, payroll in, tax in, and whatever that they had. Yeah, and for, every, for, for over eight years, because yeah. look, if the government wants to try to find money from you and you get an auditor and, and that's like, look, if, if we're talking about the importance of having legal documents, and the right types of documents that that that's 
how it makes sense, but that's a that's an unfortunate reality. It doesn't happen often, but it it could lead to a business ending event, which is why it's so serious. So you know, in reality, it's kind of like the uh, you know humans are very bad at estimating risk, and you know that's why we're all you know generally much more afraid of shark bites and dying in airplane crashes than we are of getting hit by a car as we cross the road, which is in reality way more dangerous. And in fact, we should probably be a lot more afraid of you know sugary soft drinks than we are of sharks because they're much more likely to kill us but you know in this realm it seems like you know people are freaked out about whether they're certified on the cadillac or whether they're maintaining their stop party certification in reality they should be much more concerned about whether they're paying their staff as employees or contractors incorrectly that seems like much more yeah, dangerous uh, the that's that it, it is a danger you want to go understands the industry and understands the jurisdiction and what it is that you're up against the other things that just come to mind is like trademark is another one of those that to me it's just like it's it's so such low-hanging fruit and it's not going to be a business ending event but like you not securing a trademark and someone registering a trademark ahead of you for the same mark it's you're going to, you lose all of your goodwill and you lose your trade name and everything that you've worked hard to build up for. But also like, if you want to sell your business, I, I was part of a, a deal where someone was preparing to sell their business and they never registered the trademark and the buyer did some research to discover that the trademark was registered by another company for that name. And then it's like, you know, the overall, the purchase price goes down by 15% in an email over you know, some, that's something that's, that's simple. So there, there are a bunch of, there are a bunch of things that, that we can do as, as small business owners to, to be best prepared for, for when these situations might come up. Mm. Um, that's, that's interesting to me because we're in the process of actually applying for trademarks for breathe education. And, um, our first application was actually rejected because we had to show, I can't remember the exact legal terms, but we had to show like sufficient, you know, recognition in the marketplace or, you know, whatever it might be. And there are obviously there are other companies in the world with the name Breathe. And we had, uh, we have changed, we changed our logo in 2016. And so we've got like heaps of history with the the name Breathe Education, but we had a different logo (laughs) associated with that. So all of the documents that we had pre-2016 were basically inadmissible to this process. They didn't kind of count towards the whole application. We had to kind of start from scratch with our second application starting in 2016. Yeah, it's, look, the way that it works with trademarks is they they are tricky and there, there certainly are nuances to it. But what, what I find more often than not is that they want to work with you, but they have rules. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's like, it's not like, no, everything's finished, but it just means you have to apply again and you'll apply smarter and, and yep. do it better. Yep. But they, 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 governments reward those who pursue registration of a trademark yep. for good reason, I believe. Uh, last thing I want to ask you is uh, something you, you touched on um, in uh, a couple of times, um, which is teaching online. And, you know, in this sort of post-COVID or I guess we can call it post-COVID, you know, post the start of COVID, um, time, you know, online teaching has become way more common. And so, you know, f- two questions. One is, you know, from a legal perspective, is anything different about teaching online than teaching in person? And secondly, um, in regards to restraint of trade, you said one of those three, you know, key things of restraint of trade was the the geography 
over which it extends. And if I'm teaching online, well, my geography is infinite, right? I'm, I'm teaching anyone anywhere in the world in theory. So how, how does restraint of trade or uh, what did you just call it, a non-compete agreement, um, how does yeah. that uh, apply to an online um, business? That's a that's a, a great question, and the law has not really, from my from my research, the law has not really caught up with that yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's part of why you see Joe Biden making an executive order to try to eradicate non competes because then that that element is not relevant. The way the businesses operate now are different than before, um, and and I agree with you with people having Instagram Live like this is how it works in twenty twenty one. You have a star instructor, they leave. They don't need to go down the street and put up a, you know, rent, sign a lease, a five-year lease, buy equipment. Like they're doing it in their backyard on their Instagram live. And they've got X number of people watching that are your clients. And like, so even no matter how it is that you try to do it, you'd never really be able to satisfy that because you don't know where where the the people who are watching are from so i think that's one of the roots it's like it's sort of archaic and it's sort of showing it's it's um that it's dated but the answer to your question is like i don't know and it'll be interesting to see when and how that happens because everything happens online and everything's only going to happen more online just as an aside like i'm also i'm really curious to see um not with anyone that i know but just a case about people doing pilates classes through social like live social media streaming without a waiver of liability and someone getting hurt and like what is the duty of care what is the standard of care i would love a pronouncement of law on that because one of the most common questions we get as everything went online was about social media i'm like oh cool like can i just do a facebook live and i've got a youtube channel and all these things and i'm like okay i'll have a disclaimer but it it hasn't really happened where there's been like a pronouncement. So mm-hmm. I think it would it'd be interesting to see that. And and as you know, law is always evolving. So stay tuned. And and I'm sure in, in some, some years, knowing how long things take, well, we would get some sort of pronouncement on that. But um, in relation to the, the first part of the question, I'm just an insurance guy, even though I don't do anything related to insurance. So if the question is I'm operating online, how are things different? My first answer would be make sure that your insurance covers you for everything that you're doing and the ways that you're doing it. And like what I always tell people is have your favorite snack, prepare your favorite snack, could be Vegemite and uh, toast, right? Do you guys eat Vegemite and toast? I miss Vegemite actually. Um, so, or like Avo toast is, would obviously be an Aussie favorite as well. Um, and you just prepare your favorite snack, call your insurance provider and be like, Hey, I offer Pilates online and in my backyard and in my bedroom and in the bathtub. And like, am I covered? Am I covered? Am I covered? And just make sure that you're covered for all the different ways that you're going to be operating online. And then also just when it comes to, if you're a studio, your membership agreement, or, um, if you're a one-on-one teacher, your service agreement, and then your waiver of liability to make sure that all of these documents reflect the current relationship that you have, which could mean partially being online, partially being in person, only being online. It's like you always want your agreements to be the latest reflection of what your current relationship is. So if you're doing things online, you want to introduce those elements to the agreements as well. So I guess to sum that up, you know, there is no legal precedent at the moment, but the common sense approach is like, well, one, make sure your insurance covers, you know, the specifics of what you're doing, where you're doing it and who you're doing it with. And two, just, you know, check all of your other, you know, bits and bobs like your liability waiver and your, you know, whatever other bits of 
documentation you have? Yeah, I would, I would say it's a little bit more serious than, you know, check your waiver of liability because look, waivers of liability are always about what is the, what are the activities? What are the risks? What are the outcomes Mm -hmm. you offering Pilates in, you know, with you being observing someone on the reformer right in front of you is completely different than potentially you being on a reformer and then being on, on a reformer on zoom, or even you having evergreen materials or pre-recorded classes and you having zero supervision over the way the equipment was set up uh, over the, the safety of the space. If someone's overexerting themselves, like realistically, those are significantly from my perspective, there's significantly different activities with different risks. So you'd want to, you'd want to be thorough to make sure that's covered. Uh-huh. And because, you know, a lot of those situations in social media, like where it's a live, say on Instagram, you can't actually get people to sign a liability waiver. So it's really just more of a disclaimer, right? So it's not a waiver. Yeah, you'd, you'd want to have a disclaimer on your website that connects to your social media profiles. If you do things on YouTube, you want a YouTube disclaimer. Um, mm. And that's the, the best sort of, that's the best that you can do. Right. I mean, I, I you know, I, I see on YouTube, you know, there are many pl- online Pilates classes that are available freely on YouTube that have like a million plus views on them, right? So I imagine like if there was going to be like a serious amount of litigation around this, it would have already happened. Yeah. Yes. And no, it's the one thing that's, that's interesting about law is that it only takes one, right? It just, it takes one, it takes one sort of perfect storm of someone getting injured, doing something, alleging that, they were instructed to do something that put them at risk and they suffer damages as a result. Mm-hmm. And look, the, I'm going, yeah, it's, it's life as a lawyer is very, very interesting because you're introduced to a lot of different people and a lot of different experiences. And one thing I'm going through with a client now is like, if somebody wants to sue you, they're going to sue you. Mm-hmm. And you can't, you can't restrict someone's ability, no matter how right. frivolous a case is, it's it's a person's liberty and right and a, an ability to pursue legal action if they want to. How early you can get it thrown out is another story. But you, there are there are people out there who are different and want you know, and they want to spend their time focusing on different sorts of things. And you just want to be as prepared as possible. Uh, is there anything else that you know we haven't discussed that you think you know you'd like to share or or discuss? I think this is very thorough. I, I think I think we've we've gone we've gone and this has been a really enjoyable conversation for me. It's not often that I get to really dive deep into some of these different to- types of topics. So, given a given a soapbox and a platform, I will say that I really do love Pilates, and that when I'm doing Pilates, the one thing I think is like, how long did why did it take me so long to get here? um in terms of doing it and you know i had that experience with my teacher leo who i love i probably went four months five times a week and that was like then i I started traveling and he started traveling so we haven't been able to get back to that frequency but pilates totally transformed my body more than anything else that i've done and um and, and I think it's fun and I think it's a really cool niche and I love how passionate Pilates people are about it. And so I'd say keep going and whether you're trained or certified, <laughs> have fun with it and just help people be healthy and restore their bodies and connect with their breath and all of the wonderful things. What a great parting message. Um, and can you just uh, briefly give us a, you know, the, 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 
sales pitch for your book or just know what you, who your book's for and, and what, what people will get from it? Yeah, any, anyone can go onto Amazon and you just type in Yoga Law Book. Uh, the book would be for someone who doesn't fully, you know, feels like they don't know what they don't know about the law as it relates to their to their small business. And it's it's told in a very anecdotal way. I use firsthand stories of experiences I went through with my clients to take intimidating subjects and bring light to them and let people know that, you know, like it's it's okay and and lawyers aren't all bad people. But most importantly, there are some really, really simple lessons that you can learn. You'll have you'll have fun while you're reading, but there are some really simple lessons that you can learn about the law and how it relates to your business so that you don't make the mistakes that other people have made before you. There's no need to. It's for years I have the same conversations um, and I'm happy to do so, but the information's out there. This is sort of the universe telling you like, hey, you know, you can you can take a take take a bit of action to um, to get informed and, and understand and, and just get excited about it because look, everyone spends so much time on their business. Your business is your life. It's your passion. You wake up thinking about it. You go to sleep thinking about it. You invest so much of your time it deserves to be treated professionally and and protected properly. And so normally this was a very painful and challenging exercise, but I've really tried my best to make it fun, make it entertaining and make it relatable so that you're going to want to engage and want to protect your business. And, and again, the whole coming back full circle to the first thing I shared, the reason why I started a legal practice to work with yoga professionals, with Pilates professionals, with fitness professionals, because I know that all of them want to do great things. You want to make people healthier. You care. You want to improve the lives of, of the people around you and build a community around it. And so uh, I'll just continue parading for this message and bringing attention to, to simple legal issues that all of us can, can fix and, and then focus on growing and revenue and Instagram and focusing on all the other things that we love focusing on. Thanks so much, Corey. This has been uh, very uh, illuminating in many areas for me and um, hopefully, and I'm pretty sure, very useful for, for our listeners. So thanks very much. Cool. Cheers. Thanks for having me, Raf. Turns out Corey's just launched a brand new uh, online course called Don't Get Sued, Legal Essentials for Wellness Professionals. And it covers the core issues that Corey's clients have the most questions about and the least clarity on, including service agreements with clients, operating classes online, the legal issues around that, employees and independent contractor agreements, a big hot topic, and much more. It costs 297 US dollars, but for a short time, Corey is offering it to Pilates Elephants listeners for free. That's a pretty big discount. So just follow the link in the show notes and use the discount code BREATHE. That's all uppercase, B-R-E-A-T-H-E. And you can enjoy that awesome short course with Corey for Nick's. Hey, imagine this. When you meet a new client, you know exactly what to do. You're confident because you already have a plan, a plan that's so powerful and versatile that you can use it with any client, big clients, small clients, clients with pain in weird body parts, clients with diagnoses ending in itis, osis, or opathy, clients with neurogenic pain, whatever that is. Well, actually, neuro just means nerve and genic means produced by. So neurogenic pain is just pain that is produced by nerves. 
Anyway, clients with balance issues, clients with pain in any body part or in many body parts, all with this one weird trick. No, I'm just joking. There is no one weird trick, of course, that's going to solve everybody's problems. But if you come and study with us in our Diploma of Clinical Pilates, you will genuinely learn how to help people with all of those issues that I mentioned, plus many more. You'll learn a deep understanding of how the human body works and of modern pain science and evidence-based best practice. And you'll learn how to apply that knowledge to genuinely help people with their musculoskeletal issues. This is a one-year in-depth program. I would love to have you in the program. It's 100% online, no travel required at all. You can do it totally from your lounge room. If you're interested, I'd love to have you. Come and join us. Click on the link in the show notes, and I look forward to seeing you in class. Go on, click on the link.